Ava Hartling. Welcome to The Brand is Female, where every week I speak with women change makers who are redefining the rules of female leadership. This season of our podcast is brought to you by TD Bank Group, Women Entrepreneurs. TD helps women in business achieve success and growth through its program of educational workshops, financing, and mentorship. Visit thebrandisfemale.com slash podcast and follow the link to find out how TD can help you. This week, my guest is Dr. Juveria Zahir, a mental health clinician scientist whose research focuses on suicide, gender, and culture. Her choice of specialty stems from her interest in knowing about people's stories. She even likes to tell her two young daughters that she is a doctor for feelings. She is a passionate champion for her patients and for her female colleagues in medicine and science. She's currently leading the first ever study in the retention of women scientists in the mental health space, and she believes that representation and role models that look like us are the key to inspiring more young women to choose a career in science. Dr. Zahira works with the Institute for Mental Health Policy Research in the Emergency Department at CAMH. She's also an assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Toronto. This episode, along with several more this month, is presented in partnership with CAMH and their new Women Mind initiative. Women Mind is a community of philanthropists and thought leaders tackling the unique gender issues that underrepresented people face when it comes to their mental health. An initiative like Women Mind at CAMH is critical to address the gender inequities we face when it comes to mental health. Find out more about CAMH and Women Mind by visiting the link in episode notes or go to camh.ca. So, I'll call you Dr. Zahir and Javeria. It's a pleasure meeting you. Thank you so much for speaking with me on The Brand is Female today. Thank you so much for having me on. I want to start by asking you, and this is always how I start these interviews, going back in time a little bit, when you were growing up, did you already dream of having a career in health or science, or did you dream of doing something completely different as a, as a young girl? So I think a lot of people who come from immigrant backgrounds have the same experience. So in our communities, um, you know, the idea of medicine was so important. I remember being a little girl and my father saying, you know, you should go to medical school, you should be a doctor. It's a way to help people and it's a way to make sure that you'll always be safe and secure. And I remember, though, my father and grandfather both said the same thing, be whatever kind of doctor you want, but don't be a psychiatrist. Uh, which was really interesting. And I think part of that is that in, in a lot of our communities, and that mine was a sort of an Indian Muslim community, the idea of mental health can be very frightening and scary for people. And we can think, oh, those are problems that happen to other people and other communities and not people like us. So it's been um, a really interesting journey. And my journey has taken me to sort of trying to understand Muslim mental health and, and mental health needs for, for women and ethnic minorities. So uh, mm -hmm. it's really been a full circle journey. And what made you choose um, mental health specifically? And you just brought up some of your interests in the field, but was there kind of a personal anecdote or was it just, you know, throughout your studies, you became interested in, in mental health specifically? I think I've always been interested in stories and people's stories. Um, I think to understand somebody or to understand a cultural phenomenon or to understand things that are happening in the world, we need to listen to people's stories. And I think the gift of psychiatry, of mental health care is, it's such an honor and privilege to be able to sit with someone and hear their story, you know, what symptoms they're experiencing, certainly, but what is their cultural background? What is their history of trauma? What are things that make them feel resilient and strong? Who are their connections? And I think, you know, this career where you have the privilege of listening to people's stories and sometimes under very difficult circumstances and on very difficult days uh, has always felt like a gift. 
Mm-hmm. And tell me, tell me about some of your specific work. So within mental health, what some, what are some areas that you're specializing in, and you know maybe what your what your research has been focused on. So I am an emergency department psychiatrist. So two days a week, on Tuesdays and Fridays, I work in the ChemH emergency department, and ours is the only standalone psychiatric emergency department in Ontario. Meaning people who are experiencing distress, worries, uh, issues with alcohol or substance use, just feeling awful and unsafe can come to see us and you'll see a, a psychiatrist and a team who can help support you. Um, so that's what I do on the clinical side. And my research career has focused largely on suicide and suicide prevention. So trying to understand people's stories of getting care, people's stories of distress, and working with patients and families and care providers to come up together uh, with interventions that can work for different communities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's fantastic and such such important work. Um, have there been role models, and I'm interested in, in hearing about women role models specifically. So throughout your your journey, maybe your studies or since the start of your career, were there you know women that you know who inspired you or who you looked looked up to who played a role maybe in your you know your choice of career and and how you know your journey your professional journey has been playing out uh, since since you chose this field. Yeah, I think about one of my earliest mentors was my aunt, who was a, a hematologist, an internal medicine doctor when I was growing up. And she seemed so important. She always had a pager and she was always answering phone calls and she got to go to the hospital. And she did a lot of work with residents or medical trainees. She was the program director. And so you could see how proud she was of these young people, these young women often, who mm-hmm. she could meet and shepherd through and who would do amazing things. And I remember once she said to me, Javeria, the reason I love doing academic medicine is because... I get to learn um, from people who I mentor as well. Mm-hmm. And so I think she was a, a huge influence for me. And then in my career, I think two things. So one is seeing women at the table, particularly women of color in this field. It makes you feel like you belong. It makes you feel that there's a seat at the table for you. And I think I've also had the great gift of having male mentors who were really focused on family. I think sometimes the message, whether it's in business or whether it's in medicine, is that you have to sacrifice everything to be successful, mm-hmm. that you have to work 24-7, and there isn't space to think about having a family or think about um, living a meaningful and balanced life. And you know, one of my male mentors took 18 months of parental leave, for example, and that was so inspiring to hear him see and talk about. And then at CAMH, we have you know, women like Deborah Gillis, who's the CEO of our foundation, Vicki Sturgiopoulos, uh, who is the, phys- the psychiatrist-in-chief, Dr. Catherine Zahn, uh, who's our CEO. So everywhere I look, I see uh, people who I can believe in, and I can see maybe someday that I can be someone that someone believes in too. What would you say to women who are considering a career in mental health? You know, maybe someone who's uh, just just about to choose, you know, what specialty they want to they want to take in in a medicine field or, you know, someone who's just inspired by the field in general, uh, what would be your your tips and, and advice for a young woman considering that, that career? Yeah, I think about this a lot. I have two little girls. I have a seven and a half year old and a three year old. And when they asked me what I do for work, I, I said to them, well, I'm a doctor for feelings. And that's what that. they, they tell people now. They'll tell their friends, that's well, my mommy's a doctor for feelings. So if your feelings are feeling really hard in an emergency, you can see my mom. And I would say to young women who are interested in this field that mental health is health, that you will get the message sometimes that mental health is is subservient to physical health or that we are not real doctors or that, you know, people need to buck up or that this this work isn't important. But 
I think what the pandemic even has shown us is the extraordinary importance of mental health and the effects that trauma can have on all of our lives. And to be a young woman about to start in this field, you will have tremendous opportunities ahead of you. Um, and there's different ways of looking at mental health too. So if you love brain and behavior, if you love genetics, if you love biomarkers, there's space for you. If like me, you love data, I love to interview people and I love to um, look at epidemiological data. There's space for me there too. There's space for all of us um, mm -hmm. and there's space for people of all kinds of different backgrounds because I think if you are um, a member of an underrepresented group, for example, to be able to work with patients of the same you know, minority group, it can make you feel like, it can make that person feel like they don't have to explain everything. Uh, so I think diversity in mental health care providers is so important. Mm -hmm. Well said, yes. Um, you brought up the pandemic and the fact that, you know, that's uh, uh, helped us, it, it's put a spotlight on, you know, mental health issues that were present before COVID, but certainly have been amplified throughout the, you know, the, the crisis uh, uh, that the pandemic represents. And uh, we know that women especially are, um, you know, have been, have been suffering from job losses, obviously in sectors where women are, are typically uh, uh, very represented, whether it's retail, hospitality, and so on. Uh, it's women having to take more responsibilities at home if they're, um, wh whether they, you know, they live with their partner or if they're, if they're single moms. How do you think, and for, uh, let me go back for a second. I'll start by asking you, what are you seeing now and throughout the last year really because we've been in this for 12 months what's the what's the impact the real impact you're seeing is it you know an increase in mental health uh, related issues are you seeing more patients coming to CAMH or you know to facilities in general seeking help um you know what's your what's your read on the real impact the the pandemic has been having on, on society's mental health i think this is such an important question and you know, the pandemic is such an unprecedented event in any of our lifetimes that it can be very difficult to know what the story is when you're in the middle of the story. And as you said, we're 11, 11 and a half months in now. And so the things that we were seeing early in the pandemic, for example, I think when there is an event that affects everybody, there can be a sense of social cohesion that can build and an idea that, okay, well, we're in this together. And there's also a fear of the virus, you know, you wanting to lock down. And so I think at the beginning of the pandemic, we in the mental health care, urgent care world, as well as other physicians who work in regular emergency departments, they saw a real decline in cases, people kind mm. of afraid to get care, afraid to seek help. And when you have that kind of decline, early in the pandemic, we saw that people who are really vulnerable were affected. So people who don't have housing, for example, people who are in long-term care facilities, people who are incarcerated, uh, you know, these groups can really suffer. And then you think about people who have severe underlying mental health issues, whether it's schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, routine is so important and social support is so important. And so that can be really challenging. I think we also have been seeing in the, the last few months that substance use has really increased. And I think it makes sense. You know, a lot of the healthy coping strategies that we have, it feels like they're not there anymore. Um, and that can be really challenging. And I think for women in particular, you know, women, as you mentioned, are dealing with an extra layer of stress, whether it's financial stress from a a recession that has affected females disproportionately, uh, whether it's increased um, demands in terms of caregiving or housework or homeschooling. We know that the literature suggests that even for women who are extraordinarily privileged working in academia, for example, they're losing far more time um, to these tasks than to their, than their male counterparts. 
Um, and you also think about women who are in vulnerable situations, so women who are potentially vulnerable to gender-based violence. Um, a pandemic, you can imagine, would be extraordinarily stressful for them. So I think, you know, people say, well, is this a shadow pandemic of mental health or mental health care or mental illness? And I think what I would say is, is no. I think what we're seeing is the cracks and fissures of an underfunded mental health care system and difficulty accessing care. And I think if you're a woman or a man and you're struggling, you are deserving of care and there is really good care out there. The only, you know, one of the benefits we've seen in addition to what you mentioned about understanding that mental health is health and that everyone is deserving of care. We've also been able to pivot to really innovative strategies to deliver care. So for example, virtual care, CAMH's virtual care has gone through the roof. And that means that you know a woman doesn't have to find childcare and park and wait for two hours to see their psychiatrist. They can do it from home. And it's been remarkable for me to see how well that's been received. Uh, and if you live in a, in a rural area, for example, the idea that you can access services is really important. So my hope is that, that these innovative models of care, coupled with a real understanding and commitment to funding mental health care and women's mental health, it's my hope that if anything can come from this, maybe it's that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I guess my, my second question would be, um, what do you think we'll have to watch out for? And we're starting to kind of see what post-COVID, you know, may look like or when when that will start. And what do you think we'll have to be careful with as we're kind of re-entering, I'll call it the normal world. I don't know that we're going back to the same old normal, but as we re-enter the world, um, what are things that we need to keep in mind from, you know, kind of a, a broader mental health standpoint? And I'm also thinking of, you know, employers or business owners who have employees who, you know, already have been uh, probably going through um, uh, all kinds of different challenges when it comes to mental wellness and, and well-being. But as we re-enter uh, society and, and the, the, you know, the quarantine and the, the lockdowns and uh, what will we have to what will we have to look out for, uh, I guess, mm -hmm. is my question for you. Um, and I just need to talk. I think there's so many um, really important threads there. And I think about maybe three. And the first thread that I think about is that the pandemic has been a shared trauma. And we know that trauma is a risk factor for mental illness. And one of the ways to understand reintegration or I think evolution might even be a better word because I don't think we're going to go back to where we were. We're going to go someplace new and different. And as we evolve, as we move forward, we can have experiences of you know, feeling very anxious. We can have experiences of feeling unsafe. We can have experiences of feeling really overwhelmed. And I think to be kind to ourselves and each other is so important. And that brings us to the second point around the workplace. Um, you know, there is a focus on productivity, whatever that means, whether you're creating something or building something or selling something. And at the same time, it's very difficult to be productive in a sense when our attention is split in so many different ways, or we're not feeling safe, or we're not feeling secure. Uh, CAMH has really wonderful resources for employers. There's a, a workplace mental health handbook that also includes a specific section on COVID, which I found to be so useful as someone who doesn't, you know, work in, in business or industry to see the things that we can implement in, in, um, in business settings to help people come back to work. And I think the third thing that's really important is you know, speaking with a lot of people, although there have been so many challenges, there's been people who say, well, you know, working from home has been really nice for mm -hmm. me. Yeah. Um, or, you know, I have a lot of responsibility for homeschooling my kids, or I have responsibility for caring for an elderly loved one. And so 
transitioning back, I think it's really important for employers and for all of us to think about how people's needs may have changed and how going back to exactly how things were might not be the right answer. Maybe there's a middle ground where we can incorporate some of the benefits that the changes have had. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are those are all great points. Um, now, uh, going to, I know some of your research has focused on um, suicide prevention specifically, and I'd love to ask you, what are the things you wish people would know, uh, you know, about suicide and maybe in the context of being able to help others uh, around them? And, uh, there, you know, there's so much, I think, stigma around around suicide and, and just conversations uh, for, for, you know, that can help with suicide prevention. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. And I think the word you use, stigma, is so important. I think 15 or 20 years ago, we were not nearly as good as we are now about talking about depression or anxiety, for example. There has been a real sea change in how we understand that these things can affect all of us. And I think, though, suicide feels so frightening. It feels like something that's kind of shrouded in darkness. People can feel ashamed if they have these thoughts. They can feel really afraid. Um, and it seems, you know, mysterious and um, inevitable. And I think what I would say to people, um, to all of us, whether you're suffering from suicidal thoughts or not, is that having suicidal thoughts is nothing more than a sign of suffering. It's a sign of distress. It's a sign that you're in pain. And it's a sign that you are deserving of help. One out of every 20 Canadians may be experiencing suicidal thinking at any given time. And so having these conversations with each other ahead of time, you know, to say to your, you know, your immediate family, you know, I know that things can be really hard. And at some points you may even have suicidal thoughts. I just want you to know if that ever happens, I'm here and we'll get through it together. I think sharing stories of hope and recovery can be very effective too. When you can see people who look like you and um, who have full and meaningful lives, then, you know, for them to say, I had suicidal thoughts, I had an attempt and I've come back from it. And I'm so, you know, happy to be living my full and meaningful life. I think that this is so important. So, you know, I think we need to demystify suicide. I think that we need to make sure that services are available to people who are suffering. And we also need to remember that suicide prevention is not just mental health care. Suicide prevention is freedom from trauma and oppression. Suicide prevention is safe housing. Suicide prevention is food security. Um, Suicide prevention is creating a world where every life feels worth living. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Again, again, well said. You are a woman in the field of mental health, and we know that there's a gender gap, and unfortunately, that's true in you know several several industries. Um, how do you think? Well, first, where do you see the gender gap in mental health now that you know you work in the field, both in a in an emergency clinical context and research as well? Uh, you know, where is the gap, and how do we go about fixing it? I think um, mental health care is not too dissimilar from other medical specialties, other academic disciplines and the rest of the world where, you know, there's a lovely paper that came out a couple of years ago by some of our colleagues in Toronto that showed that at the assistant professor level and the lecture level, kind of these first couple of steps on the academic pathway, women are well represented. But as you move up, that gap grows and grows. And then Mm -hmm. it has all of these downstream effects because you you don't see yourself then at the associate level, at the chair level. And I think that this is really important. We're doing some research right now where we interview women who wanted a career in academic mental health care, so research and psychiatry, to better understand what are the barriers, what are the facilitators to moving forward. 
And I think we need to think about explicit bias, which is, you know, quite clear, which is a hiring panel that says, I don't want to hire somebody because, um, you know, they might get pregnant versus implicit bias. The idea that, you know, that we all operate under a set of assumptions that make it um, uh, more likely for a man to move ahead than a woman based on these underlying assumptions. And then the last piece I think is so important is that, you know, we need to think about things through an intersectional lens. So, for mm-hmm. example, women of color are going to be paying a larger price than uh, white women, especially black and indigenous women. And women who are doing research that may not fit in the the biological paradigm of mental health care that has been so um, uh, important over the last years, you know, brains and genetics. Mm-hmm. If you do other kinds of work, it can be a challenge. So I think one of the first steps is having these conversations and being really explicit. And you know, a focus on mentorship and opportunity. There is a huge, um, there's a huge, huge, huge piece of the puzzle here, which is when women are trying to get their careers um, off the ground, it's also at the same time that they're having children potentially, or that they're caring for, you know, elder aging parents. And so being aware that growth in a career isn't linear. It's not like you get 10% better each year. It's really exponential. So you struggle and then all of a sudden things kind of take off. If we miss that launch point for women, that crucial time where they need that investment and support, um, we're not going to see them take off. So I think early investment is really, really important. This season of The Bren is Female is made possible with the support of TD Bank Group Women Entrepreneurs. Confidently building your business takes sound advice plus guidance to the right connections, tools, and resources. As a woman entrepreneur myself, I know I need all the support I can get. What's great about TD's services for women in business is their collaboration-based approach. They work with both internal and external partners who can provide education, financing, mentorship, and community support. TD employees are able to be proactive in the advice and guidance they give to women in business. They can facilitate and connect you to workshops, coaching, and mentorship, and they engage other like-minded business leaders in an authentic way so we can share experiences and learn from each other. Would you have an example of when you've experienced or witnessed a gender gap in in your own career, in your own path? Yeah, I think that's a a great question. And again, I've had the benefit of having so many mentors and so many supportive people in my career. But I graduated from my residency training, so the training that allowed me to become a psychiatrist. And at the same time, I was um, expecting my first daughter. And in those early years, as I'm finishing my graduate training um, in research and doing a fellowship and trying to get my career off the ground, there was always a really huge pressure to, just a small thing, but to travel and present at conferences internationally. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we had a study that was running between Canada and China, and I had gone to China twice previously, but how was I going to go with a nine-month-old? And these are the places where you kind of go and network and meet people. And I remember having a meeting um, with someone in a leadership position, and they said, well, you need to go to more international conferences. You need to make these international connections. And you know, there, there's without an understanding that this is like a very gendered issue. And I remember my male mentor talking to him about this. And he said, you know, when I was when I had little kids, I didn't want to travel either. And that's OK. And here are other things that we can do to make this work for you. Um, so I think that can be uh, really important. I think another piece um, where you see that gender gap is in terms of opportunities. You know, I think we think about meritocracy um, as the may the best person win. And if you work really hard, you'll get where you're going. But we know that you know men get more opportunities to 
be co-authors on each other's papers, for example. Um, men ha and if there are more men at the associate or full professor level, men are more likely to mentor men. And so that kind of being pulled up uh, can feel really challenging. And all of that to say, you know, it's, it's been really important for me in my career to mentor uh, people who think differently, people who really care about equity and diversity and inclusion, people who bring their own lived experience to the table, and whether that's women or queer folks or people doing really cool and interesting work, um, that has been a real gift to me. Mm -hmm. And I want to talk about kind of the other, you know, the other aspect of the, the maybe gender inequities, but uh, when it comes to uh, research and awareness for women's mental health specifically, and I think women often it's also, um, you know, we, we, we've kind of been, uh, we grew up in a society where we're told that we always have to be tough and resilient. And, you know, there's kind of that expectation that we can have a job and take care of kids and take care of the household and do all these things without complaining or without falling apart, right? Um, do you see that we have, you know, that there has been progress uh, in how women's mental health is considered and, and cared for and managed? Um, and I'll add kind of a second question in there, but um, are we at the risk, do you see that the pandemic would be putting up, putting us at the risk of going backwards? So kind of touching on what we discussed earlier mm -hmm. a bit. So I think that's an excellent question. And the first thing I, I, that came to my mind as you were speaking was the word hysteria. Um, and we kind of still use that in popular culture and hysteria comes from the word for uterus. Um, and so thinking about how healthcare, mental health care, has a history of being systemically racist and systemically um, biased against women. Like this is just a fact. And we know that even as recently as, you know, 20 or 30 years ago, even if you're testing a new drug, whether it's an antidepressant or whether it's uh, a medication for blood pressure, the idea was that women's bodies were somehow atypical and the hormones would um, impact the randomized control trial or what if they're pregnant and so all of these studies were even done on men and men's bodies and and we know that mental health and mental illness can look different in men and women we know that for example in schizophrenia although you know men and women are diagnosed at about the same rate um, men may be diagnosed a little bit earlier their symptoms may look different and so unless we have an understanding of what mental health and mental illness looks like in both genders we are really doing people a disservice. And that's to say nothing about making sure that we create gender affirming spaces for people who are trans and non-binary as well, and sort of removing some of the essentialism there. And, you know, it's a really good point that you make around um, like women and the pandemic. And I, I come back to trauma. So we know that, for example, for first episode psychosis, we have these really extraordinary, you know, three year long programs where people can enroll and get support around um, workplace and medications and family therapy. And we know that these programs actually reduce all-cause mortality and lead to a higher level of functioning and um, have all kinds of great outcomes. But for illnesses that affect women disproportionately, for example, PTSD, trauma, even suicidal thinking and behavior is more common in women, although death by suicide is more common in men, we don't have these same, yeah, we don't have these same resources available. And these are sort of these structural pieces that are so important. If we can invest in women's mental health care, including trauma care, uh, perinatal care, um, postpartum care, um, and address some of the societal inequalities that result in, in a lot of distress, we'll, we'll be much better off. Mm -hmm. um, so on a more personal note, 
what are some things that you find help you on a, on a daily basis? And I, I mean, I always love asking a mental health expert that question. Uh, and, and somebody recently on a, in an interview used the term uh, mental hygiene, right? Those things that kind of help us on a stay grounded on a daily basis or, you know, stay sane, literally. So what are some things that uh, you find helpful? Yeah, I was just thinking, if you had asked me this question a year ago, my answer would have been so different. It would have been all around, you know, making sure that I we went on vacation as a family or, you know, seeing friends, um, going out for dinner. You know, my husband is on a soccer team. My daughters do gymnastics and soccer. And so it's so interesting to see how that answer has changed in the last year. Um, one of the things that's important to me um, and our family is um, being uh, kind and genuine with each other. So to know that as a family, the four of us in our family are a team and on a team, people are going to have good days and bad days. And we're always there for each other and we'll always pick each other up. And that team approach has also been so helpful for me on my research teams, you know, checking in with each other, knowing that we're not going to be able to get as much done as we used to as well as on my clinical teams, you know, checking in with our residents, checking in with our nursing team, with our social workers. Um, that's so unbelievably important and having people check in with you. Um, I'm trying to think like what we've done in the last year that's been helpful. I, as a psychiatrist, I always tell people to exercise. Um, we know that antidepressant, like, you know, for people with mild depression, exercise five times a week can be as effective as an antidepressant, but I've never really, you know, taken that to heart myself. Um, but during, you know, during the pandemic where you're, you know, I used to go in four or five days a week, I would get tons of steps in, you're not doing that anymore. And so we really, my husband and I really invested in, in exercise and having time for ourselves. And we can each take, even before I saw you today, I could go and, and, and exercise for 45 minutes and feel, um, much more centered. Um, and I think one of, um, my husband was asked this question in one of his meetings, he's an engineer. And someone said, well, how is everybody coping in the pandemic? And he said, oh, well, every once in a while, I like to order myself some elaborate takeout for lunch. And that made me laugh because, you know, what are the ways that we can treat ourselves in, in this kind of unprecedented time? Um, and I think that really helps. And as a parent, I think it's really been helpful for me to sort of be in the moment with my kids and to say, yeah, this is really tough. This is awful. And it's okay to be annoyed about it. And we're kind of in it together rather than to try to sugarcoat things. And, you know, the last, the last thing I'll say is, you know, we're very lucky to have support, although you lose a lot of that support during the pandemic. So trying to find creative ways to Zoom with friends and family um, to like when things were more open in the summer, my siblings and their partners would come to visit all the time. These sorts of things um, really make things a lot easier for all of us. And I think having that hope that, you know, it's a small thing, but I, as an emergency department physician, I was able to become vaccinated and that kind of mental peace around knowing that I was going to be more safe when I came home at the end of the day, when I was seeing my family and that my team was going to be more safe and my patients were going to be more safe was extraordinarily um, reassuring. And I, I do hope that all Canadians have that opportunity to feel that type of reassurance as well. Mm, yeah, it's not only the, you know, the actual immunity benefits, it's also what it does for our mental health. You're right. Absolutely. Um, and then I have a bit of, of a silly question, uh, but not that silly considering the, the you know, the, the, the circumstances that we find ourselves in. Is there such a thing as Zoom fatigue? 
Oh my goodness. You know, I, I've read the articles and I've, I've tried to figure it out because it, it's something that I think we all feel in our bodies. And I, you hope that other people are feeling the same way because then it makes it real and it makes it an us problem and not a me problem. I know for myself, I have days where I am in front of a screen talking to people um, from morning to evening. And it is exhausting, you know, making eye contact, cameras on, not being able to multitask, not being able to walk around. I think the other thing that's interesting to me is that before like meetings had a, a natural kind of, there was a limiting reagent, a limiting factor to meetings because you all have to be in the same place. and you know, people are in different places and, you know, you have to figure out, work with other people's schedules. But now I think if everyone's working from home, people are inherently available. Uh, <laughs> I think that's like pretty problematic. So I think Zoom fatigue is extraordinarily real. Um, some of the things that we've done on our teams to help is sometimes, like I know for our research team, sometimes we have alternate like camera on, camera off meetings. So then people can, so we can see each other, but then people can actually also like chop vegetables for dinner or walk around um, or multitask. And I think that has been, uh, that's really smart. Um, I have the benefit of having a job where two days a week, I, I don't have any screens. I don't Zoom, which has been really helpful for me because if in the emergency department, you're not gonna be Zooming with anybody, which is really good. Um, I think the other thing that I am really guilty of, and I think many people, especially women are really guilty of it, is like you look at your schedule and you're like, oh, well, I'm gonna fill up all the open space in my schedule. You know, like I got a nine o'clock, a 10 o'clock and 11 o'clock and I need to book a meeting for next week. So, oh, I have some space at 3.30, so I might as well just fill it in. But then when you're actually going through your day and you don't have a breather to have lunch or to walk around um, or to exercise or to like get your other work done, um, it can be really problematic. So I'm a big believer in white space in a schedule. I'm not there yet. But if I get there, I'll tell you. That, I was um, yeah, I was gonna ask. Um, I'll be. I need to follow your advice on that too, because yeah, I'm a master at booking back to for sure. And I think we all want to be efficient, and I think that comes from being a woman and having multiple roles and responsibilities. Like you need to get everything done in a day. But even today, I had between one o'clock and three o'clock off, and it was great. And mm -hmm. I have to be better about that. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's fantastic advice. And then my last question, which is always my favorite question to ask guests, what do you wish women would do more of? I wish that women would do more of giving themselves a break. Um, I I think in, in some ways, you know, when I say that, it can put all the blame on a woman, when really the reason why women can't give themselves a break are the, you know, patriarchal structures and the the systemic, systemically racist structures that can really oppress women, um, especially women who don't have, you know, the privilege of being able to determine their own, you know, workflows or have multiple roles and responsibilities. At the same time, I think we can be so hard on ourselves. And I think about all of my group chats um, and whether it's, you know, a group of physician moms or um, a group of friends that I have from my undergrad, whatever group of, whatever women's group I'm in, you know, a lot of it is saying like, I, I messed up with my kids today or I messed up at work or I feel like I can't do this. And I, I think like we're doing the best we can. Everybody is. And to say I'm doing the best I can and I'm great and to show ourselves the grace that we show our partners and our children and our friends, I think would be really great. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, again, that's another piece of fantastic advice. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure speaking with you and uh, we'll follow up to see how your Zoom schedule is shaping up for the next little while. <laughs> I'll check now I'm going to I'm going to remember this and, and work harder so I can have a good answer. Well, and hopefully we're inspiring, uh, you know, everybody who's listening to maybe, uh, you know, book some of that white space in between uh, in between Zoom meetings or other types of meetings. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. It's so nice to speak with you. I really hope you enjoyed today's conversation. And if you did, as always, don't forget to subscribe, rate and give us a review wherever that is possible. Thank you to TD Bank Group, Women Entrepreneurs, for the support of The Brandy's Female. You've got it in you to succeed. Let TD help guide you. Visit thebrandysfemale.com slash podcast and click on the TD logo. Thank you for listening. I'll be back in a week with a new guest.